What's up, podcast listeners? This episode is honestly um, probably one of the coolest conversations I have ever had. And I don't mean that in an exaggeration form. I truly mean that like in the process of setting up this conversation, I just had goosebumps, chills um, about the impact that this discussion could have. And, and, and the focus of this was to start with everything that happened with George Floyd, but to get different perspective and perspectives and insights into how can we make this world a better place? How can we actually tangibly understand what's happening and, and the, and the racism that has existed in this country and how it's actually panned out in, in this world we live in today and what do we do about it to move forward? So I, I, I can't help, but like be totally humbled by this group of people that was on the show. So uh, Melissa Dobbins is coming at this from the perspective of removing bias and discrimination in the hiring process. Pete Lampson is coming at this as CEO of an organization that is in talent acquisition. And um, Kimberly S. Reed is a global diversity and inclusion officer and speaks worldwide. Uh, Derek Hayes was a former um, cop in Detroit and had a very unique story to tell that I can't even come close to doing it justice about how close this incident hit home for him. And Asante Cleveland um, is comes from the NFL background, pro athlete, and his experience from that transition in the corporate world. And, you know, just a wide range of different backgrounds, career types, but also just like amazing, amazing human beings. And so like, I, I, I like, even as I record this have chills because of the impact, the influence that this group of individuals have the humility to be able to hop on a call like this and discuss and challenge each other and, and, and just speak into the difficulties and the challenges, but yet the hope to overcome. And so I, I, I just, <laughs> you got to listen. It's just so good. And I hope we can make this world a better place. And I hope that um, this, this, this stirs on conversations in, in individual communities and in local communities, not, not for anything to grab attention, but I hope this conversation among many other amazing conversations that are happening allows us to realize that we're human, that black lives do matter, that we need to care about it, that we need to emphasize this and come alongside it, it, together and, 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 and fight for injustices that are happening in the world. And also just look at each other as human beings and say, yep, I got your back. I love you. And so to everybody who is a guest on the show, thank you, not only for being a guest on the show, but the lives that you live and everybody who's listening, thank you for, for caring. And thank you for, for, for being interested in how to make this world a better place. So tune in, enjoy it. Feel free to send me a direct message or an email. Um, would love feedback, questions, thoughts. And uh, this is just fantastic. Well, hey, first off, thank you so much to everybody on the show, you know, who is willing to listen in and ask questions and be a part of this conversation. I, I, I'm super excited about this group of people that we're going to dive into. The whole goal here is to talk about sort of the tragedy of what happened with George Floyd, but also kind of the impact in all of our different worlds and, you know, what that's led to the conversations that we all need to have. And I think this group has some really, really amazing perspectives, and I'm just excited to dive in. So I guess without further ado, you guys mind just each sharing a little bit? Maybe Asante, you can lead us off to share who you are briefly, maybe a little bit of your background, and then maybe also just dive in like why this conversation is important to you. Yeah, uh, my name is Asante Cleveland. I played in the NFL for four years. I retired. I've been an investor, and I also host a podcast as well. And this topic is incredibly important to me because 
I'm black and my dad was a corrections officer for a long time. So he taught me about how to conduct myself around the police all my life. So just seeing this uh, was very eye-opening and not eye-opening, but just earth-shaking. That's awesome. Kimberly, maybe you want to you wanna dive in and share a little bit about you too? Yes, yes. Um, I'm Kimberly Reed, and um, I have the blessing every day to work with some of the brightest individuals on the planet to fulfill our purpose. And that purpose is to ensure that women and people of color have a seat at the corporate table and that they have a trajectory to the ENC suites of iconic brands that we utilize and also that some of the most influential organizations in the world that we have an opportunity to work with. This is important to me, not only because I am a black woman, but it is important to me because we deserve the best. And the best is to be recognized for our talents before a crisis. It is, we deserve to be recognized in leading organizations because we can lead. Because we work hard and we are educated and we are strong, not just black women, but women and people of color. We did not listen, the nation did not hear Collins knee, October, 2016. Shame on us. And now, the nation wants to listen. We think, we hope. So I love to participate in forums like this because as much power that our voices have, we have to be consistent in our communication, in our advocacy, in our message. So that's why I'm so elated to join all of you to continue to be consistent and not passion, but purposeful. Because this pandemic is not our purpose. It's not. But the advocacy that we are taking for this movement, for this awareness, for what's happening in our nation is. And thank you. That's good. Thank you. Pete, you want to you wanna go? Sure. Uh, I'm Pete Lamson. I'm the CEO of Jazz HR. We're a recruiting software company for small businesses. Um, uh, delighted and, and humbled to be here today. This is an important issue for me as this is, uh, this is for me, it, it, for all of us, I hope it transcends our, both our professional and our personal lives. And it's one of those that, that blends into both. Um, I look at, at the, the tragedy of the killing of George Floyd a few weeks ago as, you know, yet another in a 400 year pattern, um, that must, we have to address this and it has to no longer be something that, that is impassioned in headlines for a period of a few weeks or a month or two and then nothing changes and so uh, something we've talked a lot about internally is the initial reactions we've all had the statements the social media posts and so forth those are good they're important 
but we have to move from point in time reaction to proactive and sustained action. And, and I'm here to listen as much as, as talk about how we can best accomplish that. But again, I'm, I'm delighted to be here and thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Derek, would love to hear from you. Oh, wow. Um, man, how do you follow those guys? Uh, my name is Derek Hayes. Um, man, I'm born and raised here in the city of Detroit. Um, played professional basketball in Europe for several years. Came back home, decided to uh, pursue my passion in criminal justice because that's what I got my undergrad in. Became a Detroit police officer. Uh, was shot six times on duty, February 12, 2005. Um, since retired, went to education because I wanted to give back uh, to my community and serve my youth. And so I was in education for about 12 years. Um, got my master's in education, became an administrator, and um, then decided that education was kind of not going in the trajectory in the inner city the way that I wanted it to go. And so um, I decided to start my own business. And so I uh, bought into a franchise and I served the community, uh, realtors and brokers in our areas doing professional photography. But, and then on the side note also, I'm a professional speaker. Uh, my purpose is to help others discover their destiny. So through my uh, life uh, incident, you know, through the glory of God and grace of God, that I'm able to minister and share my testimony to motivate others to walk out their purpose, you know, because we're not promised tomorrow. Um, I'm invested, obviously, in this uh, incident that happened to George Floyd because I was a police officer. Um, I uh, wore that hat proudly. Um, I protected and served my community. I understand the stressors of police officers. And then on the other side, I'm a black African-American man and um, I'm concerned. You know, sometimes I don't um, feel proud of the badge that I still carry as a retired officer because of the incidents that's been going on in the past. But um, I do thank God for the opportunity that I can go back to the precinct and ask tough questions because a lot of the officers being hired in my city are not my color and they're not from my community. So I think there needs to be education on both sides, you know, the community side, but more importantly, the officers on uh, officer side, because they have the ability to take life. And, um, you know, so I'm excited about this conversation. I'm excited about everybody on the panel and I just thank you for having me. Amazing. And Melissa, certainly last but not least, would you mind uh, giving a little intro? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Melissa Dobbins, and I'm the founder and CEO of Career.Place. And that's a anonymous candidate screening platform with the mission and the passion around removing bias and creating equity within the talent acquisition space and the hiring process. And our mission and our belief and what I've worked for since the moment that we've created the company years ago and before is about breaking these cycles of inequity. Inequity for anybody and everybody, and it goes all around. So whether it's people of color, whether it's women, um, LBGT, people with disabilities, there's so many different things that affect outcomes in the way that we're able to live and enter our lives, including how we're hired and promoted. So there, while there are many places 
to break that cycle and bring in that equitable process, those equitable decisions that allow all of us to be treated fairly, to be celebrated for what we are amazing for, we decided to start with hiring and start with that hiring process. Um, and I'm very excited to be part of this conversation. That's great. Well, this is uh, this is gonna be a fun panel. And obviously, as we as I ask questions, I want everybody to you know give insight, give their thoughts. There's some maybe some questions not everybody answers, but if you've got a point, maybe raise your hand or whatever. But I hope this is free form, and the intention of the questions are be for everybody to answer. So we'll we'll kind of start off on a, a, a interesting one. So when this first thing happened with with George Floyd and the reaction to it, as a white man, my my gut reaction was text my black friends and say what can I do to help. And Asante and I were actually kind of laughing about that was because that was just the overall, I don't know what to do. I, I want to get involved, but the best thing I can do is text the one black person I know or the sphere of my influence in the community. And I think there's a good heart behind that. And I, I, I say that as I know a lot of people reacted the same way. I think there's a good heart and a good intention. But my question is, is that maybe the right thing or is that the right approach? And what for one, could we have done well before that? So it wasn't a, I don't know what to do. I'm going to text one black person I know, but to how do we react going forward to be more involved in the community? So I'd love just kind of people's insights of like, how do we address this? What's the reaction? What should the reaction be? And that's, uh, that's kind of my opening just question. I'd love some thoughts on. Sure. I'll jump on it. <laughs> okay. All right. Excellent. Yeah. And I'll follow you. Yeah, so it's funny that, yeah, we talked about that. And as I told Matt, like I had multiple white friends text me reaching out saying like, hey, I'm just thinking about you. Mm -hmm. And it was funny to me because like, I've been dealing with this for 28 years. Like this, this isn't new to me. Like, this is just the first time that this shock has really captured other people's attention. And it's good that it's jarred so many people in a way that they feel that they're, they have to do something. Because uh, I, I played with Colin Kaepernick and it's disheartening that back in 2016 when he was taking that knee that no one was listening. They wanted to change the narrative, make it about the flag, make it about anti-military. And he was doing everything right and uh, the most peaceful way that we could go about saying like, hey, we can start instituting changes, bringing awareness to the issues. There's black men getting killed at an alarming rate by the police. Uh, people getting brutalized by the police, even if it's not caught on camera, that doesn't mean it's not happening. And people didn't listen. And it's unfortunate that it's come to this inflection point. But I think moving forward, it's listening and educating our individual communities on the harsh realities of what goes on in this country. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I agree. And we, I, in, in our work, my conversations for the last two and a half weeks to three weeks have been with senior leaders of global organizations. And now we are coming into a pivot where there's now this added of smaller organizations, nonprofits, and schools. I was on a conversation with head of school and a CFO in their board yesterday. 
And the range of emotions, right, maybe is not indicative of size of organization or race and gender. Maybe none of those variables are a part of the equation. I think it's just people. We are in a space where we have never been before. We are in a national, a global pandemic. We've never been there. People were struggling then. Small businesses closing. People losing their jobs. Losing their health benefits. Children don't have food to eat. I deliver groceries for a wonderful organization called Legacy of Hope. When I drop off those groceries along with the many volunteers and police officers in Philadelphia, those are to delivering groceries to cancer patients who are going through treatment who cannot afford food and their medicine. The reason why I'm sharing that backdrop with you is because it is deeper than the racism that African-Americans have felt and the pain of generations, 400 years. That's trauma. That now we are, now that is on, now we have this global pandemic. And now we have questions. Now we have text messages. And all mean well, absolutely. But sometimes when you're on that cliff, you fall off. So what I've been telling my clients, new clients, existing clients, be kind to yourselves. And I'm saying this to Caucasian women and men. And I'm saying be kind to themselves, not, I'm not saying if you are racist, be kind to yourself. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying that if you're with your level of empathy and awareness and wanting to know how can I help, what can I do, those, the percentage of people who painted Black Lives Matter on on in Washington DC because the majority of those folks were white men and women. I'm talking to those people. Be kind to yourself when you make a mistake, when you sent too many texts to your black friend. But what I will say, and I close this comment, I apologize for going a little long. I just think that it's important though, that as we lay the foundation of this conversation, that we look at empathy, we look at education, we look at awareness, but we look at action. Because we have a police officer, a retired police officer in this group. We have two black men in this group who look at the lot, who look out of, look at life from a very different lens than I can even begin or imagine to speak from. So I think that the level of understanding of where we are and how we got here is extremely important to think about. So I'll, I'll, I promise I'll stop there. 
no, it's good insight. Good. You're good. good. You're good. It's perfect. Derek, you got something yeah. for us? Yeah, I think, um, you know, to, to, in the simplest way to answer your question is, um, you know, no, you, you, you was not wrong, 100% mm-hmm. uh, wrong and, and reaching out, um, you know, because, you know, your people's silence can be misinterpreted or misconstrued as acceptance. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, like probably, you know, Asante, you know, Kimberly getting text messages from a lot of people <laughs> and, um, you know, either apologizing or, you know, saying, hey, man, I value you, you know, as a person, you know, um, I'm glad I know you, you know, and again, what what can I do? What can I do? And, um, you know, to be honest and frank, man, I, I, I don't know the answer, right. you know. Um, I do know this though. <laughs> Call me when stuff is not going on. Reach out to me. Text me when you know you just say, you know what, I just wanted to reach out and say hi. You know, um, because that's the type of person that I am. You know, I, I call, you know, a lot of my clients, you know, um, a couple of them had babies and things of that nature and wish them happy Father's Day, you know, congratulations on their baby, you know, and things of that nature, gave gifts you know, reach out to me like that. And then once we build a relationship, you know, now you can start understanding the plight because conversations will come up. You know, Shanti played athletics. I mean, everybody wasn't African-American on our basketball team. I played in Poland (laughs) for two years. Come on now. You know, um, got friends that I'm still chiming with on Facebook and and just conversate, holding conversations and building relationships is the key. And now when things like this happen, it doesn't seem odd to get 20 text messages. Like the only reason why you text me is because this happened? Why you didn't text me when Colin Kaepernick was, you know, trying to take a knee? Why you didn't call me when Breonna Taylor? Why you didn't text me when, you know, George, I, I mean, we can go back to Malice Green in Detroit. Back right, in the day. right. You know, so so there's, there's you know, um, I think, because of the situation, like Kimberly said, we're in a national, uh, what national, worldwide pandemic. Mm-hmm. And now I think God is stirring up some, some things in people that saying, hey, listen, man, we're going to separate the wheat from the tear. And I need you to understand what's really going on. And so um, asking and, and asking, you know, what can I do? It, it's good. You know, it's good. Um, now it's the follow-up because I'm all about follow-up and follow-through. Mm-hmm. What I think is important to keep in mind as these cycles of texts and, and messages were flying, and I got some very interesting ones from people of all colors and genders, um, because there was a lot of angst around what do I do, and there were two things that were concerning about early on in some of these conversations and some of these messages that were happening as they were reaching out to me in the DNI space. One was a lot of guilt guilt all over the place. And the problem with guilt is it keeps us bottled up. It doesn't put us in a state of solution, in a state of empowerment. It puts us in a state of defense and and almost in a sense of hiding. So there was guilt from people who were white, who were, you know, am I part of the problem? Can I be, can I have permission to start becoming part of the solution? And that's what they were looking for. There was guilt from people who are black and people of color 
who were, if I am not going to protest because I can't get COVID because I have a family to provide for, am I not doing my part? Or if I can't answer a question because honestly, I don't know what my white friends are supposed to do. Am I not being part of the solution? And so we were creating so much guilt and weight on each other rather than, and I love that be kind, because if we can get into a state where it's like, let's, let's talk and talk about next steps and what do we do about it rather than being bottled up in guilt. Yeah. Um, the other one was a lot of frustration mm -hmm. and the early frustration was, it was almost a sense of the, the problem is so big. I don't know what to do about it. Very similar to, we look at hunger, and if you look at hunger in terms of world hunger, and you want to solve it, you feel very lost. But if you can start by feeding that child, and that class, and that school, then you can start building up and really becoming part of the solution. So we had to start picking apart the guilt and pulling that away, and picking apart the frustration and turning it into empowerment. Because when you can do that, now you're creating a, an, a, a situation, an atmosphere of empowerment. And that's what we spent the first couple of weeks doing with my clients, with my friends, um, with the community, is just pulling that apart and giving everybody permission to be part of the solution rather than being so weighed down by not only the problem, but by, am I gonna say the wrong thing? Am I gonna misstep? Do I have a right to be part of the solution? My answer is always yes. Every man, every woman, everybody should be part of the solution because then the problem by, by its very nature has to disappear. Um, so that was one of the things that, that struck me early on. Uh, and you know, one of the other common themes was please don't make me speak for all people like me because I can only speak for myself. So I think right. we gotta remember that none of us are mm -hmm. able to speak for all people who look like us or check particular demographics that we check, but we can speak from our own hearts. And that's that voice is very important. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah, that's Absolutely. awesome. Pete, you and I had an offline conversation. We kind of talked about the initial reaction among like just jazz and how you guys have sort of leading an organization with an amazingly diverse, you know, group of employees, you know, mm -hmm. do you mind giving a little insight about sort of just the initial reaction, kind of how you guys have addressed it from an organizational standpoint, whatever you're obviously comfortable. Yeah, no. Um, and, and we don't, I, I guess we went through a lot of the emotions and sentiments that all of you have expressed. I mean, and all of them um, and more. And we began by just, I think like all of us, we, we wanted to show support, um, and and empathy uh, and respect and we did that a, a number of different ways some of them were certainly not unique to us I mean you know online posts and and I put a statement out and 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 so forth and and then um, and then similar to I think kind of to to Matt and 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 you know your initial reaction of reaching out to Asante and 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 with the the same sort of perspective that Derek shared of, you know, don't just reach out to, to you know, your, your black employees or your black friends when a tragedy is happening. But I, I had a conversation with every single black employee at Jazz HR as a part of this. And those were uh, emotional and raw, uh, 
painful and and wonderful all at the same time um and yes we talked about what the the tragedy in minneapolis and and my conversation sort of straddled what happened in atlanta so some did and some didn't but um we mainly talked about their day-to-day lives and they shared the examples uh, with me that I think as as a privileged white male, it, it wasn't like I didn't know these things happen in this country every day, but it's so much more personal and real when you're talking to someone who you know and like and respect and you 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 hear them as an individual, as a person sharing just the day-to-day challenges that 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 they have to live through every day that were that it was uh it was powerful and so um and emotional and it still is and what this has led us to is and i referenced this sort of in my opening comments is again the the point in time reactions are good and we all want to i i think that those point in time reactions honestly are selfishly and as much as i don't want to admit it, admit it perhaps as much for us as it is as for the people we want to read them as you know our uh our african-american fellow employees or the lbg community community whoever kind of we're reaching out to it, it yes we want to show empathy and respect but it's a it's a way that we deal with it as well and um and i and maybe there's value in that i hope but but i i think what's more important in the long run is that we take action and and that we that we put in sustained things that, I mean, if history tells us anything, this news, as awful as it has been, will get bumped off the headlines. Um, it will, and because it's happened for 400 years. Mm-hmm. So, so we had a whole host of things. Some of these were already underway for us, um, but others were new. Um, and so we, we've got a, uh, uh, a, a diversity and inclusion group that's going to be more uh, carry a little more weight than it did before and it's something we've been paying attention to before but i think there's more that we can do um um, we are in the process of rewriting our internal core values to better reflect um hopefully who we already are but but who we aspire to be and we will determine ways to live those every day as well not just put them up on a wall and check the box and forget about them We've joined uh, the CEO Action Organization. Oh, awesome, awesome. Yes, and, um, and that, that was a recommendation of our, of our diversity and inclusion group. Um, candidly, I was not familiar with them. I learned from them, which was wonderful. I don't really, I, I don't like the name of it because it's not about the CEO, it's about the entire organization, mm-hmm. uh, including our board of directors, but we're delighted to be a part of that. Um, we are putting together philanthropic committees. We're putting together volunteerism committees um with chair people and and again with the and we're going to determine charters for each as a way that this becomes sustained and just a part of the fabric of who we are as an organization and if the 80 of us that are jazz hr can make a difference well then that it's going to be a small sphere of influence we understand that but we can start there um and and some of these things will work and and some probably won't right and we'll course correct over time and and do more of what does and and try new things and and less of what doesn't but that's that's how we've again our the 
kind of my big focus has been a, a movement towards sustained action. Um, and I, 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 I feel like we're taking the right steps. I hope we are, but we're, we're learning every day as well. So anyway, for asking. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. Yeah. Kim, did you yeah. have something? Mark, I did, I did. Because, you know, I think that's extremely important because corporations are really feeling, they're, they're, they're feeling it. They're feeling this, they're feeling this rush to the finish line. Um, and I feel it in the work that we do. Um, because everyone has, not one person that we have talked with has said anything about sustainability. They have said everything about reactive, tactical, and that is it. That is not the equation to sustainability. And Paul, you said it. It's about sustainability because what they're seeing are these large iconic brands like Nike, like Starbucks, and they learn their lesson once again, running too fast to the finish line. Because I think what happens is that when adversity is your teacher, you learn some things the hard way. Diversity is dynamic. And I think what happens is that when you have these conversations about race, when you are trying to figure out the courageous conversations, when you're trying to chart the course when, within your organization, yes, it's wonderful that adversity is fueling this solidarity of corporations, of people, right? Because yes, is this new to us? No, it's not. But it is new to many organizations to heighten their awareness, to heighten their efforts, and to make bold statements in the form of letters, to put it in writing now, because that holds them accountable. They've never done that before. And so I'm not turning this into a business conversation, but it is. This is a business because at the end of the day, there are politics and money connected to this movement. One company in particular has given $100 million to Black Lives Matter. Do you think that we will be forgiving to that organization if they don't apply action to their plan? Probably. So the reason why I say that also is because for companies and the people of color inside the corporations with real influence to win this race, this time and sustainably, because we have the opportunity to do that, success is not going, uh, going to be about competition. That's what this is turning into. Starbucks, Nike, everyone, Google. But I have to say something real quick about Google. They are they, they're the only one who's impressed me. The CEO came out with a bold statement, clear and concise goals and objectives and at that size level. I mean, at that level of that size of company, I should say, that has impressed me. And they have executed already against those goals. And so when I go back to my statement about success is, is not going to be about competition because we've made it that 
Remember what, what we said earlier about Colin? We missed the knee. We missed that as a nation. My fear is that we're going to miss the true meaning of Black Lives Matter because of the competition that we are now in. Who's doing it better? Because now big business is a part of this. It's not just about the protesting. I was one of those. My sorority, the divine and the divine nine, all of the Greek fraternities and sororities, we were out there. We were in the meaning of the march. But then you have the other side of that, which is the meaning of the corporations because they have to win. And so when I say the success is going to be about competition, it's also got to be about contribution. And who, who, who's going to hold whom accountable? So you've got, the, you've got the Googles, right? And you've got this followed up plan of action and tangible commitments, which I'm very impressed by. But that is a prime example of being strategic versus being reactive to follow the hashtag. And that's what we've got to stop doing. To your point earlier about, is this a theme? Probably. I hope it isn't. We're putting too much work in this. We've come too far for this. What I'd like to see, you know, to your point, and I think it's a really, really strong one, is that there's a lot of words out there. There's a lot of comments out there. There's a lot of people who believe that awareness training is the beginning, the middle, and the end of a diversity and inclusion initiative, and it is not. Yeah. If we yeah. don't see behavioral changes, if we don't see a tomorrow that is measurably better than today in key metrics around inclusion, around diversity, and around equity, we are not achieving our goals. And there are two things that I look for when it comes to any of these organizations and what they, what they claim and what they say, what, no matter how powerful the statements, I want to know two things. Is it funded? There are a lot of DNI officers out there. There's a lot of corporations with DNI initiatives, DNI officers, DNI uh, groups. But when it comes to, okay, now I want to execute against a plan, there is no money behind that. They are beg, borrowing, and pleading for every cent. And that is not how change is done. And I want to see power. Because if they cannot influence at the highest levels and the most fundamental behaviors, there will be no change. I can say all day long, we are gonna treat people more fairly. If I can't point to various things that have changed that makes tomorrow better than today, then what you are expecting is that your words are gonna be making a difference and not your actions. Mm -hmm. But do you think, let me ask you a question. Do you think that, and maybe this, this question goes to everyone, but it's based upon something very important that you just said. And I agree with everything you're saying. But as a black woman, I spent time in corporate America, 15 years, and I worked for some outstanding corporations. I'm educated, advanced degrees. We are fully aware of the historical and existing challenges in corporate America, right? All of us, and outside of corporate America, because you all face them in other areas for people of color, specifically of African-Americans. We just talked about American Express just promoted a wonderful and smart and brilliant, extraordinary woman, Glenda Neal, 
She is a Wharton graduate. Her accolades, her brilliance is from here to the other side of the world. They just brought her to the table. She was, was she not worthy of the table before George Floyd died, was murdered? See, this is my, these are my tough questions and courageous conversations for us to have, not in a, in a, in a angry tone, but we have to have these conversations because this is part of the problem. We are fully aware of the historical and existing challenges. We are. That's not what the conversation is about. Because the proof is in the data. Mm -hmm. Proof is in the data. We know unequivocally that racial diversity across management levels predicts firm productivity. We know that. We know diversity equals innovation. We know that. We should not need the business case because the moral case is clear. So I appreciate all the commentary in, that, the, in the continued dialogue that we have, because I'm going to be quiet. But it's, 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 it, it, sometimes I have to step out of my bias that I have to have because of my roles. But it, it's just to me, I, I'm, it just goes back to this success and competition where we forget about the purpose because we've got to contribute to the cause of solution. If I can um, <clears throat> chime in a little bit, um, I think uh, everybody is 100% is correct. Um, you know, I, I didn't look at the video when this happened. For about for about a good three weeks, mm. um, because I didn't want to speak out of anger. Mm -hmm. I wanted to um, just hear what people were saying. You know, I would watch the news. Sometimes I would just turn the news off because of the image. Yeah. Um, I, I, I got off of Facebook. Didn't want to see it. You know, I would scroll through real fast, and um, I finally watched it on a Sunday morning, and. I, I cried um, mm -hmm. because I flashed back 15 years ago when I was chasing a young man, African-American man, who attempted to rob a McDonald's. And he never got inside, well, he was inside the McDonald's hiding under a table and they were getting ready to close and start cleaning up and he was gonna go in and rob the mm -hmm. place. <clears throat> um, but they noticed him and they set the alarm off. Me and my partner rolled up. Um, he left from the inside, but he ended up robbing a black woman in the parking lot. He had his hands in his pocket. He never produced a weapon, but he, you know, um, threatened her as if he had one. And if you know anything about law, your intention is to rob, and you say you got a weapon. That's that's felony firearm, right? Uh, robbery. So we we called it out. Um, when I took, when I caught the gentleman in the backyard, because we, you know, a, a, a chase ensued about about a good five minutes later after we found him walking in the middle of the street, and um, I took him down to the ground and I placed my knee on his shoulder and mm -hmm. neck area to pin him down in the snow. It had snowed real bad the night before, 
And when I put my weapon up for officer safety, because I was, you know, we, I didn't know if he had a weapon or not, but I ran with my gun. And, you know, something just told me, keep your gun out. But as I started putting it up, when I went down to keep him in the snow, he turned up under me and started shooting between my legs. And I, and I had to return fire. He didn't make it, I did. And so it took me back to that situation. And when I looked at, just so happened his name is Derek. <laughs> um, and I looked at his, his body behavior as he kneeled mm. on this gentleman. It wasn't to, to me, and, and I got a lot of pushback from some officers because I challenged them, you know, on this. We weren't trained to put a knee in someone's neck. We're trained to preserve life, first and foremost. We're trained to officer safety, as well as your safety, because we want to keep you safe as well. But more importantly, we want to keep ourselves safe as well. That was not a technique to be used when a man was in handcuffs already. And the intention of him leaning in, I mean, I got, I just, I, I just really just wept because you saw it. You saw the balance being held in his pockets. You're holding your balance. It's hard to kneel on somebody and not have your hand on something to hold your balance but you had your hands in your pocket in your on your thighs to hold the balance and to keep you there and that just showed intention now however this plays out i don't know you know it has to go through its course but the proof is in the pudding and so i say that to say it starts with you know so a man think of so a man should go there's a mindset that has to be changed in everyone. But more importantly, I believe my white brothers and sisters, because historically there has been an indoctrination that white is better or white is right. Mm -hmm. And when you have a thought like, well, you know what, let me, let me see if I can get involved. Let me, what can I do? You have to understand first and foremost, you're not choosing a side. Because a lot of people think that if I stand up with Black Lives Matter, or if I speak against the injustices that's been going on, that I'm not, I'm choosing a side from my brothers, my white brothers. Mm -hmm. And you're not choosing a side. Mm -hmm. You gotta get that out your mind. I mean, even evangelical Christians, pastors that I know, <laughs> they are feeling threatened by their own members because if they say something, right. they're like, well, you're choosing a side. What about us? What mm -hmm. about us? What about us? You're not choosing a side. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I've I read this statement and it talks about Jesus going after, you know what I'm saying, the one, the 99 sheep, but he went after the one or the prodigal son. You know, he, 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 he concerned about the one. It's not that he's not concerned about the 99, but he's going after the one. And so, it's not that you're choosing a side, we're all one race. These, I believe, uh, social constructs have been created to label African-Americans, you know, Caucasians, Hispanics, all this stuff to label a color of individuals or demographic where they come from, but we're all the human race mm -hmm. and life is precious. So we have to start with our mental. We have to start with thinking differently. 
And it starts there. Now, I love what Nike's doing, Google, uh, Starbucks, all the big corporations. Pete, I hear what you're saying, the, the social inclusion, diversity inclusion, you know, and it can seem daunting because even as a public speaker, when you speak, you want to get your message out. So it's almost like you want to do a buckshot approach. <laughs> I'm going to do a buckshot approach and hopefully it singles out somebody and somebody can get the idea and they can run with it and they know what I'm talking about. But I learned that less is better and narrowly in on that one individual <laughs> and, 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 and speaking to that one purpose driven life and that person, you will impact a generation to come after that. So as you do these, you know, as a corporation and companies around the world really get involved, you really have to take care of what's in your circle of influence. I can't, I can't mentor all children when I talk and mentor, but when I got my 15 this year, I'm focusing on that 15. Three might listen. One, I can go away and be like, you know what, I'm good, because that one listen. And I know he or she, whether white, black, brown, Hispanic, anything, if they can get it, they can change their mindset. And it's like a trickle effect, you know? Um, per, uh, I, I'm big on relationships. Big on relationships. Because, uh, you know, if you just put this together and, hey, you know, it looks good on the outside, but when you cut in that cake, and it's glass in there, and it's charred and rocks. But on the outside of the cake, it looks good. It's not. It's, it's it's defeating its purpose. You have to really get in with the people in your circle of influence, mm-hmm. and that's inviting them to your picnic into your home. It might look strange to your neighbors. Who are you? Who are these? These are my employees. These are per- people that I fellowship with and I care about because if they can change their mindset as well. Mm-hmm. that not all white people are bad, all police officers are not bad, you know, then they can teach their children and their children can teach their children. You know, I have four, uh, uh, three uh, black African-American men, grown men, one 23, 22, and the other one back there, he's 15. And Dale and my son is at Notre Dame University, plays football there. Derek just graduated. He's going into law school this fall. And I've been teaching them since they were youth how to interact with police officers. Because see, the, the world says all police officers are bad. They, they racial discriminate and things like that. I showed them technique that I learned to keep me safe. So when I walk up to a car, I'm bladed. My hand is on my weapon because you just don't know. It took 36 seconds from the time I jumped out of my scout car till I was shooting for my life. You don't know that one incident. Police officers die from domestic violence run at a large percentage. They're walking up to a house and a, and a man or woman and inside shoot out the door. They're gone. They don't know. So there's techniques that they have. It doesn't mean that they are threatening you. It's a technique that they're learning. So when, you, when they pull up and you pull over or they pull you over, keep your hands at 10 and 2. Roll your window down, have your driver's license, proof of insurance, and registrations ready. When they get there, they're going to walk up, and they're going to they gonna be bladed. It's not a threat. They're not, they're not scared of you, you know. And so I had to teach that. And so now my sons will teach their sons. And that's how we change generational yeah. disposition. 
you know, and so it starts with us and the people in your influence, if that makes sense. No, that's, that's great. And that, that was going to be one of the, I mean, we talked about, you know, how, how do you make generational changes? And this is going to be probably a pretty tough question, but you know, <laughs> what is something that's a well-intended thing a white person does that's actually maybe racist or actually is something that's wrong or taken offended? I guess coming from, I, I mean, I, I grew up playing sports and I grew up interacting like a wide range of people, but there's tons of my own very bubbled sphere of influence. And my, like, I guess question to anybody on this would be, you know, what's something that I as a white man unintentionally would, you know, ha have done that came across as racist or came across as wrong? Or I, I hope you guys get the question there. I, I'm just wondering, like, what am I doing that I'm not even thinking about that's so ingrained in my culture, so ingrained where I come from that's coming across as wrong or ill intention or what like that. I'd love just kind of some perspective along that line. It's, oh, go ahead, Derek. You go first. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, ladies no, first. No, no, it's, it's funny because it's hard for me to answer that question. And I'll tell you why. I grew up in um, Boston, um, Woburn, um, in Woburn. And um, my dad was an air uh, um, pilot in the Air Force. And Hanscom Air Force Base, we also spent time at. Then we moved to Connecticut. So I grew up in Connecticut. So I grew up in a, a diverse neighborhood per se, but I didn't see a lot of, of really a, kids that looked like me until I was about five or six. And so, you know, but my dad was very, and, and you probably say, well, what's very, very black? But my dad was, you know, he grew up, you know, my dad's 77 and my mom grew up in, in Georgia. Um, she went to Bethune-Cookman College. She pledged sorority. She, you know, she did all of those things. My dad went to college late in life and finished late in life. He went to Northeastern University. He says, my mom is no longer with us, but my dad says, you know, if one for your mama, I wouldn't have graduated college, right? Because she did all his homework. Now I could say that because his, his degree is confirmed, right? And so, <laughs> and so, and my dad is my hero. He is my hero. Um, and it's just the two of us, meaning because I'm an only child. So we have a big family, a lot of love and all of that. The reason why I bring that up is because um, do I worry about him? Yeah. I worry about him because he plays golf at golf club, at club, country clubs where he would have never been able to step foot on. He has a golf club that they're probably about 60 deep and they're all retirees and they all get on their wives' nerves and they she got on my my, my mom was like, Oh my god, are you is your dad going to play golf today? I hope he is. And so he, they go play golf. And this one of the people at the country club said to my dad when he pulled up, or what he didn't say when he pulled up was to get his clubs out of the trunk, but he got everyone else's out. And the older gentleman that was behind my dad waiting, cause you know, they pull up the cars and they take everyone's clubs out. And the man who was a white man said, hey boy, my dad is 77 years old. His father was killed in his yard 
by a Ku Klux Klan member, two of them, in Monroe, Louisiana, in 1942, in front of his mother and their children. So when I, you talk about not knowing what to say, sometimes it can be out of sheer ignorance. Sometimes it could be out of sheer lack of education, lack of how you grew up and how you view the world. Because how we grow up and how we view the world and what we are taught at childhood matters. And so when my dad turned around, not to answer him, but if you knew Ryan Reed, <laughs> I'm not going to say on Zoom what my dad said <laughs> when he turned around to that man who said, hey, boy. Some choice words. It was choice said, words. Boy. It was intense fellowship. <laughs> and let me tell you why my dad did that, and rightfully so, right? <clears throat> because racism, um, excuse me, discrimination, in those words of reminders of racism, when you had a father who was killed in your front yard from two Ku Klux Klan members over a misunderstanding because of their two daughters wanted to go in a boat across a lake that my grandfather was driving, but he did not have those order, orders to do so. And everyday instances of racism contribute to race-based trauma and reminiscent of years and years of experiences, generations that we face today. So Mark, it isn't sometimes what perhaps white people, what they say wrong, because I hear it all the time. I don't see color, Kim, no. Kim, at Christmas, there's three blacks that come to my house. I'm happy you can count them. There are things that we hear our parents say. There are things that we just hear people say. I had a CEO in tears yesterday because she said, we don't, we're gonna police the social media of everyone. And a black person went black, no pun intended, because she said police social media. And she was in tears because that was not her intention. She forgot in that moment what the word how the word police would land on an African-American woman that just saw the video that made Derek cry. So I say that those stories, bits of, of excerpts of stories, to say, once again, be kind to yourselves, but be aware and communicate and ask the question before you ask. Because the trigger of this generational trauma that is still here and fresh for many of African-Americans, something so small as 
police. And I'm not trivializing what she said, but policing social media, but triggered the video that made Derek cry. Hey boy, that made my dad not just think of being a black boy in Louisiana, but but two Klux Klan, two Ku Klux Klan's members killing his father. And that generational pain and anger that his brother, big brother, my uncle Emmanuel carried till he died of leukemia 10 years ago. He never got past it because he watched it. So it's bigger than what we see and we cannot trivialize it. That's what I think happens with some, not all, white people. We trivialize Colin and we're trivializing certain language that we use. Oh, come on, it's, don't be so sensitive. No, 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 no. Don't tell people not to be sensitive because we're talking about emotion. Affinity, when you talk about affinity, that's emotion. Cognitive diversity is emotion. And that's now you're talking about psychological. In my work, I am no psychologist, but sometimes I feel like it. But diversity, equality, and inclusion, I don't use equity that I have my reasons, another session, another call for another day. But diversity, equality, and inclusion for major corporations that I work with, and when I go in to speak to them, it is not a message of textbook. You will never hear me give someone a book. What I do say is diversity needs to be in white people need to remember that it is seen, it needs to be seen, it needs to be deliberate, it needs to be learned, it needs to be valued, and it needs to be evolutionary. And that evolution of learning, compassion, and understanding is going to help with that. Kim, I don't see color. Oh, Kim, stop being so sensitive. Oh, Kim. I'm a black woman and I'm not even comparing what Derek shared about not even close to what he shared with his sons or what they have to do when a black, when a cop, when a cop pulls them over. I live in a beautiful, blessed to live in a beautiful, beautiful development that I work hard to do. And at three o'clock in the morning, I came home from my girlfriend's home. We had a girl's night. I wasn't drinking, I was just driving home late and I didn't put on my blinker as quickly as the cop wanted me to. So I left it on when he pulled me over so he could see it was still on. I had to pick up my cell phone, it's not here. I had to pick up my cell phone and call my dad on video, wake him up in the middle of the night at 3.06 and call him on video because I didn't know what was gonna happen next. And I'm a black woman. So it's these things that still sit here when someone who doesn't look like me says, oh, Kim, don't be so sensitive. I remember those stories I just shared with you. So I just want us to think about things a little bit more before we say them. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, 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 I would say it's simple, but ne <laughs> never use urban colloquialism. <laughs> it, you know what I'm saying, trying to fit in. <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't, you, you don't, you know, and that's, you, you hear everybody all, all the time, you know, uh, what's up, brother? 
you know, my brother, my brother, you know, and, and I, so I do that, Derek. I'm sorry, I do that well, to all. Well, no, that's fine. Yeah, me too. You know, and, and but but there's there's some extremes. You know, yeah. when when you when you try to when you come in and you're amongst, you know what I'm saying, it just anybody and you start talking in Medea's voice, oh. how you doing? How you doing? <laughs> like I don't we don't even talk I don't talk like that. No, no, I <laughs> so don't why are you trying to Right. So why are you even trying to use that? Right. It's, it sounds facetious and I'm being funny, but it's real because I'm like, that didn't come off right. <laughs> like you agree. Anybody, you don't have to change who you are. No, in order to that's, fit the, in. that's it. You know, that's that's it. the point. You don't, you know, so because that can come off as you being a little, you know, extra, a little, you know, like, come on, bro. You know, that, that's, unauthentic. Right, not authentic, unauthentic. So be who you are, yes. you know, um, Never, never use that, man, to try to fit in. Now, uh, uh, now, if you have relationship, man, if you know you and I have relationship, it sounds like you and Asante has a relationship, and you call him like, "What's up, bro? What you doing?" Now yeah. he'd be like, "Okay, cool, man. Let's kick it." Now, I got, I got, I got a story about that with Asante. The first time we hung out together in Florida, he got in the car and we we had dinner and we were going to grab a drink somewhere. And I remember him getting in the car. I was like, "What kind of music you like?" And he kind of smirked. He's like, "Well, rap." And I was like. Okay, well, I didn't want to assume, like, <laughs> it was like a genuine, like, I, I, I didn't want to assume that. It was like, we're both young guys, like, typically young guys like rap. But I, again, it was like one of those, like, okay, now we're good. We can talk, like, but I, I totally can get that. You, you see somebody who walk in, all of a sudden they're trying to act far too cool than they should. And it's probably coming across pretty well, offensive. Right. Exactly. It comes across very offensive because, you know, and, and, you know, I ain't putting nobody on blast, but, you know, I took a director's position of an after school program for Mitch Album. And you guys might have heard of Mitch Album, known author and worked for Detroit Free Press for many, many years. He wrote um, Tuesday with Maury. I think that's one of his favorite books uh-huh. that he's done. So he has an after school program called Say Detroit. And so we had a, a Say Detroit Play Center, which was the after school program. Our mission was to, um, 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 man, I, on top of my tongue, we, I put it together. But anyway, so um, the executive director, you know, he grew up in the city of Detroit way before it really, you know, saying became black. But nonetheless, he grew up in the city of Detroit and he he just tried to put that on. So anyway, so it was I, uh, my wife at the time, um, my, my kids, a couple of other directors, students, parents and stuff all in the after school program. And he came in and he addressed everybody like that. And everybody mouth just kind of was like, <laughs> did he just talk to us? Like, you know, and I was like, Mike, you know, I say, man, you okay? <laughs> He's like, what? You know, oh, oh, I, I was watching Medea last night. And I'm sitting there looking like, no, you weren't. You don't watch Medea, bro. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just crazy. And I'm like, Mike, you know, you kind of go extra. You know, he was like, what are you saying? I say, man, stuff, some, some stuff you say, man, is offensive. And I had to pull his coattail on, on, on one other thing. He said, man, came in. And I, and, and I think, honestly, I just think he was just trying to, I don't know, just be cool. But he said, man, he said, um, man, on the way to work today, he said, I see a lot of people lined up at the bank and at the, the, the corner store. It was early in the morning. He was like, is it the first of 15? <laughs> so I'm, and I'm like, you know, who are you talking to, first of all? You know, and I'm like, Mike, man, who, that is so racist, bro. <laughs> you know, he was like, what are you talking about? I was like, are you trying to be funny? I was like, because that's not funny. 
you know, that, who are you, you know, and so we, we kind of had to go back and forth and, oh, Derek, you know, again, you know, don't, you're too sensitive. Don't be too sensitive. I mean, I'm not sensitive, man, but I don't come in here and say, hey, Mike, howdy, brother, or, you know, I, I, I just don't do that. I greet you. Hey, man, good morning. How are you? You know, and your wife come in. He, he was married to a Hispanic woman. I said, man, I don't come in talking about pina coladas and, you know what I'm saying, and all this enchiladas, what you eat last night. I said, man, I don't, I don't address you like that. So, if, you know, those are the things that you just, you might have good intentions, but just stay away from them, you know, unless you have a relationship with somebody. Uh, Mark, I, uh, if I could have season tickets to any Journey concert, <laughs> I grew up, I told you I grew up in New England, I would. And I, you talk about be the minority, because Journey is the best band. I want somebody to challenge me right now. Best band of all time, okay, hands down. And I go to the concerts when they come to Philadelphia, right? And it's funny because nobody goes with me. No, none of my friends want to go with me because they're like, Kim, you're going to be the only one. Phil Collins and, and Journey, because I love them both. I would, I'm obsessed. I would get season tickets. But when I go, and I bring this up not to, 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 because it's funny when you talk about fitting in, but the looks that I get, right? Because I'm jamming and I'm on beat and I'm jamming. And people are like, is she trying to prove, like the look is, is she trying to prove something? Are they filming her? Is she a reality star? Like what is, because you're not really supposed to be here enjoying this film. So I thought about that and I used that in a workshop because I said to myself, now it is the reverse for a lot of people in the nation because the pivot that we are in this remade nation. So when you ask that question, that analogy before I was talk, sharing with you all about the other deep and serious stories, that first came up to me because I said, oh my gosh, I was that journey girl and Rick Springfield and at the opera because I used to play violin. So I, you know, and or the orchestra. I mean, I just like, I like, various things that sometimes people who look like me, a, a high percentage don't go. So uh, it, do I feel uncomfortable? No, but other people do. So now I have to kind of step into myself as we're doing this work. And as I do conduct training and work with organizations that, wow, now folks that had power and were the majority are now the minority in their thinking and the focus. The focus is not privileged. The focus is not white. The focus now is African-American. The focus is now families who are losing their children and people to violence. The focus is no longer COVID. The focus is Black Lives Matter. That's it. And so are we gonna get racial fatigue? I hope not. But something inside of me says that we will. Asante, I got a question for you and kind of your experience. What, what's been the difference of like this whole conversation being in the NFL versus you've oh, yeah. like non-NFL standard working world? What's sort of been how that's perspective? And Derek, you've played pro sports as well too, but I'd love to, Asante, your perspective on that. Well, it's, it's funny that you, you bring up the NFL during this situation uh, because Vic Fangio, he's the head coach for the Denver Broncos, recently came out saying that 
he doesn't see any racism within the NFL. What? And exactly. It's funny because it's like there's black players and all that, but when it comes to the decision makers, there's what, two, three GMs, two head coaches, no owners, where the league is majority African-American. 70%. Yeah. And for me, as, and Derek, I'm sure you'll resonate with this as well. Uh, as a, a black man, a large black man, mm -hmm. uh, I'm 6'5", I feel the constant pressure of always trying to present myself as not a threat. Mm. Of the way I carry myself, how if I'm walking by a white lady, if I'm just like going on my little daily walk, I go out of my way to wave, smile, to acknowledge her in a way to where it's pleasant. I don't know what her past experiences are with black people or whatever preconceived biases she has. I'm trying to make sure that this interaction will be positive as I do with in all situations like that. But uh, yeah, that's the biggest thing that I've had to carry with myself throughout all my life. My dad, who was a corrections officer, he played in the NFL as well. Uh, but he taught me that you always have to go out of your way to make white people feel comfortable because in plenty of situations, as we're seeing, when white people feel uncomfortable like this, there's a rise in police brutality videos, but there's a rise in like these Karen videos where he calls the cops on a black guy in the park because he told her to leash her dog. And she calls the police, changes her voice. There's a black man threatening my life. And that could have very easily been the last day of that man's life. If this was, let's say 30, 40 years earlier, he could have been dead. That could have been the worst possible situation for him. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's, it's just always being very, for me, being very cognizant of how I present myself to white people. So taking the conversation a little bit, I think all of us have kind of alluded to in different ways and knowing each of our backgrounds, we're all pretty driven, focused people. And, and I think goals are one thing we all like to hit in our life. And so one question I'd love just to extend to the group is like a year from now, how, how do we define this as like we've successfully taken a step towards fixing the problem? Like what is that tangibly look like and I'm not saying it needs to be a certain metric or KPI but I mean what is literally like how can we all say it's not gonna you know it's it's not perfect but we've taken steps towards improving it we, we we've taken steps towards making you know Asante you you not like you just not having to go out of your way to wave you just both wave at each other and it's just mm -hmm. a normal interaction but how do we what would be sort of a goal that we all can say that like we we hit we achieved we made we made the world a better place what does that look like a year from now six months from now when this isn't a headlines but yeah i'd love thoughts on that doozy of a question i know how do we fix this but <laughs> i think first of all a year is a very short time frame i mean we cannot go fast enough but we also have to understand that we're unraveling a lot we're unraveling a lot and there's so much that we need to start untangling that when we talk about things like unconscious bias, 
I mean, there's bias where I don't care what you call it, it's very conscious, right? But then there is something underneath that. I was having a conversation the other day with a self-proclaimed inclusionary individual. I'm not going to give away who they are. Um, it was a white male in power in the, in the company that he worked for. And I had posed a question. I set him up. I, I admit it, but I posed a question to him to just start to show him how many layers that they have to start dealing with. Is I asked about criminal background. Would you hire someone with a criminal background? And I just kept layering in a little information. Well, I guess it depends on when or what, but I'm not sure. I was like, okay, let's say it was a pot possession charge. Maybe, I don't know. Okay. Let's say it was a pot possession charge back when they were 19 years old. They're about 40 now. So it happened in the past. And, you know, you got a little bit of hesitance, but basically the, the overall take was I'd rather someone without a um, criminal record to someone with a criminal record. It's like, great. Now let me explain what you just said. So if you have five candidates, one of them with a criminal record, with a pot possession charge when they were 19, back in the 80s. Now, that one is also your only black candidate. Does that mean that's the only person on your panel that maybe had pot when they were 19? Probably not. But if you look at the data of who was getting charged and who was getting off with a warning, you can start seeing what probably happened. So we are not just inheriting bias based on the color of your skin. We are inheriting bias based on the behavioral patterns over long periods of time based on those demographics, on the fact that a black man would be far more likely to be charged for pot possession than their white male counterpart for the exact same thing at the exact same time. But it's being hidden because of other biases, of other assumptions that have been piled on top of it. So we need to start chipping away at each and every one of those and start pulling them apart. Some of them are gonna be nice and straightforward. Um, like in the world, and this is my comfort zone, in the world of hiring, remove not only any requirements around criminal records that are, let's say, nonviolent, non-sexual offense for, for certain positions, things like that, but don't even know about them because they will sway your opinion. So remove them from your record, from your decision-making process and start blinding out as much of that as you can so that you can very fairly compare. It is a step, but we have decades and decades and decades of bias and of discrimination and unequal, unequal outcomes that we're trying to unravel. We have decades of people, of people of color, of women who have not been promoted. So they disappear by mid-management. You can't suddenly have them in the C-suite. It'd be fantastic, but we've just not cultivated enough of them. So why need to, we need to see the women, the people of color being cultivated through the ranks. So maybe not in one year, but five years and 10 years, we gotta see a lot more equality across that chain. And that's all, that's just one example. So that question of what do we want to see in one year i want to see a lot more steps to equal opportunity than now i want to see a lot more actionable insights 
for how people behave and how people treat each other in their communities. But I wanna see progression. So this is what we're doing now, but this is then what we're gonna do next and what we're gonna do next and what we're gonna do next. So that my kids and your kids and everyone else's kids are dealing with a lot less of that burden than we are and their kids deal with even less. And let's turn that cycle backwards. Man, that's a loaded, loaded question. Um, I, I think it, it varies from profession to profession. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, uh, what I would like to see is really the overhaul of our education system, mm -hmm. um, especially in the inner city. Um, we we have so many different, you know, I, I'm not for sure if, if you guys are you know familiar with charter schools and, mm -hmm. you know, defunding of public schools and, you know, not a lot of homeowners in the city of Detroit, property taxes, which fund public schools is not there. And, you know, th there has to be a overhaul of education, you know, because the whole preschool to prison pipeline is real. Um, you know, the, the large disparity in disciplinary actions from the inner city to the suburbs is, is, is just, just, just laughable. You know, um, the African-American kids in the suburbs that parents take them out to try to give them a better education, they're being disciplined five to ten times more than, you know, their, their average uh, a white counterparts. You know, the graduation rate is just, you know, uh, atrocious. It's, uh, the education system has to be um, just really overhauled. Um, and with that being said, because we're talking about policing and community, this, is, this has been pushed to the forefront. I, I say this and I say it all the time. When I go back to Fatal Force training in the academy, they, they ask me to come back and speak to officers that's in the academy about my incident. And I say there has to be an education on both sides. Um, I always ask officers, you know, that are, are policing right now, I say, what's the graduation rate in the city of Detroit? What's the percentage of households our fathers are not in them? What's the illiteracy rate? So when you come out of the academy and you have all this book knowledge and you start speaking policing or police officers jargon, do you think that young man know what you're saying? Do you really think they understand that, you know, you're telling them to, you know, uh, we call it e-whopping, right? Interrupt without permission or they're sitting on vacant property. You e-whopping, that's a ticket, you get $250. But you tell them to get off the property and they're like, man, I'm just sitting in my neighborhood killing, killing. it's just an empty house. We're just chilling on, but it's, you're violating the law. But you go and you expect that that badge, that uniform comes with some type of reverence. But right now, in the, in the African-American community, they don't even respect their parents, grandparents. So why do you think that they're going to reverence you after all of what they've seen for the last 15, 20 years on social media and the killings of, you know, unarmed black men and women, brown black, you know, women. So you have to come and you have to, you have to learn your, I call it verbal judo. You gotta, you gotta come up with your own verbal judo on how to connect with that young black man and that young black woman to get them to de-escalate, calm down, and then get your point across, and then get them to, you know, obey what you're asking them to obey. But if you don't, if you think you're gonna come out, throw that chest out, and I told you to get off the corner, da -da -da -da, guess what he gonna do? He gonna get loud, 
And then your training as an officer teaches you, it's called a, 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 a fatal force continuum. They teach you to be a, a step ahead or a level ahead of the aggressor. So as you get higher, they get higher, they, you get higher. Now here it is, you're trying to lock them up, they're combated, and now you want to go with non-lethal or in some cases, these officers have been pulling out pistols and, and taking it to another level. And so there has to be an education on both parts. I want to see an education. I mean, uh, a criminal justice knowledge class teaching these young, you know, say African-American boys and girls. How, you know, when I grew up, I remember we used to have the blue pigs. They used to come in and play the band. Police officer, the, the career of being a police officer, firefighter, it looked attractive. You know, law enforcement, it looked, it, it was attractive, man. You know, you were like, man, I grew up to be the police. Ain't nobody trying to be the police right now because it's not, it doesn't look attractive to them. It's not, it's not appealing. You know, and so I need to see more community involvement in the school system, not outside at a, you know, a, a community center, because the people that's going to attend that are all the senior citizens, older people in the community. You're not reaching Pookie and Ray Ray, and you know, you know, Pookie and Ray, but <laughs> you're not reaching them, you know what I'm saying, in the neighborhood. You're not, in, but because you're not at them, you're not at those places. You need to go to where they're congregating, they're hanging out. And all of them going to school because mama and them want them out the house. <laughs> yeah. so they're going to school. So you got to get in the school system. You know, you have to. It's mandatory that you get in the school system. And your presence don't have to be there because something happened. It's just your normal routine of stopping by, meeting people, understanding, uh, learning their names. When I got shot, and I'm going to leave it on this. When I got shot, there was more community people at the hospital coming to see me with gifts and cards because I took time out to stop by their house to check on their son and daughter and make sure they was going to class. Or had a couple of had a couple of young men who were asleep. Mama couldn't get him out the bed. They called me, me and my partner was able to go through, get him out the bed and take him to school. You're going to school, man. You know, you have to have your education. So those are the things that you know, you don't hear about that a lot of police officers are doing, but you can't be there always because you need to lock somebody up or somebody got in trouble. You got to be there because that's just your everyday thing. As an educator, as an um, administrator at a high school, I stood at the door every day and I greeted the kids with a high five, a holy hug for the girls, and I learned names. And when I didn't see somebody for a couple of days and I said, Tony, where you been, man? I ain't seen you in a week. He was like, how you know I wasn't here? Because I noticed, man. And then now they come to my office, Mr. Hayes. You know, my mama been locked up. I've been getting my brothers and sisters to school, man. I, I mean, we hungry, we don't have no food. Bam, I can, get, I can get pull my resources and get Tony and his kid and his brothers and sisters some assistance and help. But when they go in the classroom and that teacher treats them like anybody else and they don't look like them, and they don't ask the questions and they don't sit down and talk, but it's always, Tony, you sleep in my classroom, go see Mr. Hayes. Tony, you this, you know what I'm saying? Here's a referral. They come to me, I'm, I'm an investigator. I'm like, okay, so what's the problem? They tell me all day long, I haven't eaten, I'm hungry, I've been up all night, da 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 da, -da. my mama got in the fight, X, Y, and Z, my daddy, you know, I get all of that. So I share the information with the teachers, but the teachers, you need to do that yourself. And then you can reach that child and you see change. So 
you know, it, it has to be education on both parts. And that's what I would like to see in the, in a year or so, you know, but for me in my circle of influence, that's what I've been doing and I can live with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think for, for me, um, I don't know if I would say a year. I wouldn't put a time frame on it. This is not a structured event. Um, we're gonna, we may have a surge for this global pandemic we're still in. This remade nation that we are in. Folks are going back to a remade workforce, remade workplace, wear masks on our faces. Some of us wear masks on our faces and still get followed in a very high tax district in New Jersey. Just because I have on a mask and I could clearly, because I'm blessed, afford the four items in my hand. So I don't know if I'll say a year. What I will say is, To everybody listening and my fellow great panelists, Pete, Asante, Derek, Melissa, and the host with the most, Max. Matt, Max, Lord, Matt. Thinking about a ex-boyfriend. <laughs> Please don't let, don't let frustration generational pain and misplaced aggression confuse our focus. We've got to stay hungry for justice. Systematic racism, racism, systemic racism, excuse me, must be dismantled, period. Yeah. Yeah. Starting now. Starting now, during this broadcast, now. We're gonna, hmm. we're going, I'm just trying to think about what I, what this is, because a year is funny, but I, as I mentioned, I stick to my guns on that one. We're gonna, we're going through the life-changing painful and downright tough times in America and our lives right now, right now. So do we pick up a book to understand race and racism in America? Maybe. What I think comes to, what I think would sum it up for me is a great quote. I see color and I honor you. I value your input. I will be educated about your lived experiences. I will work against the racism that harms you. You are beautiful. 
tell me how to do better. That's the goal. That's the goal. Tell us how to do better. So my father, Ashanti, Derek, Derek's children, do not have to be afraid that we don't have to watch a video over and over to be reminded of the generational pain that we are still living in. So Matt, I can't even think about a year. We gotta use our voices and use our power and influence today. March today peacefully. Use your voice peacefully. Use your advocacy peacefully. I am committed to this work. Every organization I go inside to, we are gonna create sustainable change. We're gonna have courageous conversations. We're not throwing training at the problem. But we will include it in the strategy because it's needed because people have to be aware. We need empathy. We gotta be kind to ourselves and allow us to make some mistakes along the way because we've never been here before. So yeah, do I get teary? Sure I do. Because there's a level of humanity here. That's the moral issue. Because it's great that we have Black Lives Matter, we have a hashtag, we have corporations that are trying to be successful in this whole competition and not contribute to the movement or the cause to move the needle. Okay. But I go back to that quote because African-Americans, all people are beautiful. But when Colin took that knee in October 2016, and we didn't hear him as a nation, shame on us. That was four years ago, Matt. You asked me about one year. There's no comparison. So we, as a nation, need to vote. We need to show up and vote. We need to use our voice. Corporations need to continue to use their funding for the right things that matter to shift the narrative of education to my brother Derek's point, to change the narrative about not all cops, just like we need to shift the narrative, not all blacks. Because this black woman, that's a babe. Because I'm black and educated. Mm. Yeah, that was, I agree 1000% with uh, Derek, with, with uh, Kim, Melissa, what you guys were saying. Um, like everybody's kind of touched on a year. That's, that's tough. Uh, I think the, it definitely starts with education and all of these public, uh, shows appreciation and solidarity from 
all uh, communities, white, black, other races. I think that that's great, but we need more of that in private uh, within your own families, interactions, because if you're vocally against it on social media, but you're allowing it to happen around you within your sphere of influence, then you're a part of the problem as well. So addressing it at its root and, uh, and educating people that you can directly affect would be a great start. Um, I heard this quote the other day where if I'm in a downstairs apartment and my upstairs neighbor's bathroom is leaking, leaking so much water that's starting to come down into my apartment. It's leaking, it's leaking, water's starting to fill up. I can get as many buckets and dump the water as much as I can, but I can't change the problem because it's upstairs. So we need people who are at the top and the decision makers to actually affect the change because black people have been trying to do it for years. But until the people in power and who have the power to really affect change through funding and policies are willing to do something about it, nothing will happen. Right. You're absolutely right. Starts from the top. Well, I want to uh, obviously be a little mindful of people's time too, but um, I guess I want to give any closing remarks or closing thoughts that if anybody had any, you know, kind of leave the audience with, obviously, <laughs> I think that's kind of the point of the last question as well, too. But I'd love to hear sort of any, any closing thoughts or final thoughts each of you guys had. So I love Asante's point about the now and the personal. And I feel there's a lot of conversation without a lot of action. And I know that's been a reoccurring theme. We as every individual have the ability to influence beyond our voices. And there are three critical ways we can do it. We can do it with our vote, to Kim's point, get out there and vote and make sure that that is, voice is being heard. We have who we are willing to, to work for and give our time and energy to, whether it's our employer or whether it is good service and good works. We can, we can add to our voice our own production and our efforts. And we have our money. And that's one of the things that gets often overlooked, where we complain about things, let's say um, inequities in how people are treated, in how people are paid, in how people are promoted, but we still buy their products. And as long as we do that, we are giving them permission because we're saying, I'll talk about you, but I'm not going to affect how much money you are making. And in the world of corporations, that is the only vote that matters. So we can step up in our voice and in our efforts and in where we're going to provide our services as valuable individuals and where we are going to spend our money. And if we do that, people will listen. Because without the money, there isn't the power. And without the power, they lose their voice. So we can, as every individual, step up in multiple ways and make a difference. And I completely agree, it's got to come from the top because there's only so much we can throw out the water, but we're not even trying to toss the water out right now. For a lot of us are letting it just accumulate everywhere and just complaining about it. So let's step up. And for those who are listening, for, for, for those who want to be participants, remember that we have those three options and stop buying products from companies who are doing bad things. And stop giving your time and effort or lack there of time and effort to, to 
things that make a big difference and that are worthy causes and get out there and vote when it's time and make sure that your voice is added to the masses so that we can affect change. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. You know, uh, where you spend your money, <laughs> you know, you have to hit them in their pockets. That's, that's the American way, capitalism, right? So it's all about money. Um, so we have to def that definitely come together there. Um, I love the quote, and I'm gonna leave it with this. All that you know is not all there is to learn, and all that you learn is not all there is to know. So take the position of a learner, always. Um, you know, for those that are under the sound of my voice, you don't know everything. You don't know everything. It's impossible to know everything. And so um, sit back, listen, learn, ask tough questions, you know, stand up for what is right and righteous. You know, um, I love, you know, the acronym real, righteous, edifying, authentic, and loving. You know, if you can be that to, to, to one person, you're making a difference. And so, um, you know, I think the fabric of the world has been tugged on a little bit, um, but it's going to take a long time to get the change that we want to see but it starts with each and every one of us. So. Yeah, and that's a, that's a heck of a quote. Um, yeah, it just, it comes back down to listening and understanding and having these sorts of tough conversations. And I know that at the end of this, I've learned so much just from hearing other people's perspectives and what you guys have all been through individually through the corporate spaces. So just take time to listen and try to understand where someone's coming from. Pete, you can go first. <laughs> I was just, I was gonna say um I think that that it it's gonna be a you know speaking from for maybe for some of us in corporate America and, and those who have the ability to influence what's happening on at least within our own organizations to avoid the window dressing. Yeah. To, you know, I'm going to out BLM the next person or the next company mm -hmm. in a marketing slogan. Um, we're not trying to sell French fries. Uh, <laughs> and I'm worried about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, genuinely. And, and I'm not, obviously not a black American. I, I, I can never know what that's like, but, but I can listen, I can learn, I can have empathy and I can help steer the right way. And a, a key piece of it is, and I, I like what you said, Kimberly, about give ourselves the permission to make mistakes because that'll happen. Mm -hmm. Genuine. And if we're authentic and we're not pandering, um, and we stay with it in a sustained way, it's it's unimaginable to me that we can't make progress. So that's what we're gonna do. Yeah, and Pete, keep keep staying the in, in stay encouraged. You have a big job, and you all are what I what I've learned. You all are doing some some really good steps, and it's a step in a in a journey. And allow yourselves to evolve and and keep up the good work. Um, I'm gonna say this too, because of all of what you all have said. And uh, thank you for this opportunity. Um, I, I have to hop right off after we kind of talk, finish up.
But thank you for this opportunity, Matt. Thank you, Ashanti, Derek, Melissa, Pete, to allow me to share this platform with you, to share and to talk about something so vital in our, in our nation. And I mean that. I look forward to keeping in touch with all of you and staying connected in some way. Um, because I believe our voices are important. Um, and I meant what I said earlier. You got to be kind to yourself. Not talking about, I'm not talking to the racist that we see on television. Not. Talking to the folks that are really trying, our allies. Mm -hmm. That's who I'm talking to. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to say something and then ask. Or it's okay to communicate. It is our job to have some empathy and to give you a little grace because you are an ally. But I also will say there is a shared accountability for us to understand each other in our experiences and how we show up in the world and what contributes to that pain and what contributes to that happiness on both sides of us. And just understand that our pain may be a little deeper, a little stronger, and a little more relevant. But still be kind to yourself. Not gonna get this right on the first time. We live in complex times when complex solutions are needed and where a one solution for all approach no longer works. Global pandemic, a heinous crime, crimes in the African-American community. Diversity is a journey and like any journey, it requires navigation and care. That's where empathy comes in. This is no different. Just remember adversity. This is adversity and it is our teacher. The lessons we learn is gonna set history. Well, Sante, Pete, Melissa, Kimberly, Derek, thank you. This has been uh, this has been phenomenal, and I hope that you know we can all take and learn, you know, or take and learn what we've you know heard today and apply to our worlds and our sphere of influences and our families and companies and communities. And that's the point of this conversation: is the conversation. This is the start of many more conversations that should happen. And so I, I just want to say a huge thank you. For everybody who's on this, this has been super impactful in my own life. And I hope, I hope you know, for your guys' as well, too, in the continued communities as well. So thank you. Mm -hmm.